Thank you for joining us. Today, I am joined once again by two of our leading artists within The Eternal Sailor, the creator and writer, Derek Chan, and once again, the director of the episode, going under their protective pseudonym of Locke Yu. Good to see you both. We are also joined by Dr. Miu Chung Yan, who is the head of the PhD School of Social Work at UBC, with a particular focus on immigrant relations between Canada and Hong Kong. Thank you for joining us. You're more than welcome. Yeah. So, in generating a conversation around the situation in Hong Kong, it is inherently fraught with political ramifications. And so I would like to just start by saying that Sound the Alarm Music Theatre is not a political organization. Uh, having said that, we do not uh, condone many of the actions taken by the current Chinese government. And we are simply interested in creating conversation around the effects uh, the political transition has on communities, both in Hong Kong and here in Canada. So today we're here just to discuss what that means uh, for us humans and, and our cultures. So with that, that leads us to why many of the artistic team has accepted the offer to use a protective pseudonym. Uh, Derek, can you talk us through why that is needed, why it is important, why that was offered? So Alan, like you said, the the situation in Hong Kong right now is a little precarious. So for the safety of our team members, we have offered them the choice to work under a pseudonym because a lot of them have connections, whether personally or professionally, to Hong Kong still to this day. Mm -hmm. And Lok Yu, you, you, you accepted that offer. Uh, why is that? Why is that important to you? Yeah, uh, this was a decision that was many, many weeks in the making, and it came down to, um, well, first of all, wondering if I would go back to Hong Kong, if I could go back to Hong Kong, if I used my name. Um, and eventually the decision came down to um, how do I protect my family and how can I still be in relationship with my family? Um, so that is why I decided to go under the pseudonym. Because you still have quite a bit of family. You all have a lot of family back in Hong Kong. Yeah, correct? yeah, I've got family back in Hong Kong. Yeah. So, Dr. Yang, what what are the real ramifications? What are people facing if if the government is not happy with the things you say? Well, I think what happened is um, since last uh, July 1st, uh, the Chinese government imposed the uh, national security law uh, in Hong Kong. And that law is quite boundless. Uh, basically, it covered the whole global world. Uh, so in other words, if anyone say anything against the Chinese government or it being interpreted as against the Chinese government or the Hong Kong government, okay, there will be a legal uh, put, um, uh, consequence. Uh, that means the Chinese government and Hong Kong government can uh, prosecute you uh, from anywhere in the world. Um, so I think that really... Um, deter many people from openly talk about, uh, not even criticize, okay, talk about these kind of uh, political issues in Hong Kong. I think that's the reason why many people will like to, you know, use their pseudonyms or even hide their identity, okay, when they talk about something like that. Mm. So even us talking about this? Even about talking about this. Right. Because I think the most important thing is um, nobody really knows how this law is going, going to be interpreted and applied. Uh, at least judging from what now happened in Hong Kong, okay, the so-called red line is getting more tighter and tightened. So nobody really knows, okay, where the, the line will be drawn, um, even in Hong Kong. So I think that's the reason why uh, people from outside Hong Kong, okay, uh, will be even more uncertain, okay, how to understand this law and how it's going to be applied. 
Can you just tell us what that law kind of indicates? Well, the law basically indicates that uh, any criticisms against the Hong Kong government uh, will be interpreted as um, actions to destabilize the government or even up to a level they may interpret that um, somebody wants to overthrow the government in Hong Kong. I think that's the the sort of openly understood uh, meaning of that law. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, like what I said, okay, the law is not that clear. Um, so, to a large extent, from a legal perspective, that law is really subject to many different kind of interpretation. So that's, I think, that's the problem. And what would be the uh, 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 like an actual ramification? What could what what can they institute? Well, if say if I say something now, okay, um, openly, and then you know when I return to Hong Kong uh, at the airport. Uh, the Hong Kong government can arrest me and put me in jail uh, indefinitely. Um, so I think this is what happened now. Uh, lots of people in Hong Kong uh, have been now put in jail, uh, not even you know gone through the trial yet. So, and then if you know the persecution is you know um, successful, then I probably will be in jail forever. Yeah. And the most scary thing is. Um, if I go to a country which have a treaty, uh, extradition treaty with China and Hong Kong, uh, they can arrest me there. So, and then send me back to Hong Kong. <laughs> so I think that's the, the, the consequence, yeah. So each of you were in fact born and raised in Hong Kong. Um, let's just start with what, what do you love about Hong Kong? What I love about Hong Kongers is that we are resilient. We've gone through so, so much over the years through colonization, through political uncertainties, but we, deep down, we still have a fire in our bellies. We still have hope. That's what, that's what I like to think anyway, at least. Uh, if it's not today, maybe tomorrow. I think that's, that's what I love about us. What do, what do you see as that hope? What, what do you want to see for that? That hope to me now, after everything that has happened, is for us to preserve the spirit and the story and the memories of the Hong Kong that we love and miss and remember so that we can pass on this knowledge, this history to the next generations so that someday maybe in Hong Kong or elsewhere, they can rebuild the Hong Kong that we love. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you moved from Hong Kong when? I left Hong Kong when I was uh, turning 17. So I remember I remember 89, I remember 97. And then from then on, of course, I remember everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what's your favorite place in Hong Kong? Oh, my favorite place is this little street side restaurant um, near Causeway Bay. Um, it's uh, technically near Daihang, uh, if you know where that is. It's this street side restaurant where taxi drivers would have lunch and then as high school students we would go there and order this deep fried pork chop on noodles and it was the best thing ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. lovely. It's so connected to food, right? Always. And Lockyer, you were born there as well. Yeah, I was, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember much of it? You moved to Canada when you were... Uh, when I was 10. 10. Yeah. Oh. So I think that when I look back on my time in Hong Kong, um, the memories exist in the relationships I had. Mm-hmm. So both with like the yeah, family dim sums we would have or like being with friends from that place um, and just the life that we had that 
I don't know, coming to Canada was a bit of a culture shock in some ways. When was the last time you went to Hong Kong? When I left. When you left? So you haven't been back since. This has been the really hard part about, um, uh, the really hard part about it. Um, I had always planned to go back with my dad. Um, and then my dad has passed away since. So then there was this weight of, okay, I don't know. I'm not going to get to go back in this way with this person that I wanted to go back with. And now with what's happening in Hong Kong, this has been the challenge of will I get to go back at all? And definitely the Hong Kong that I knew is gone because that's just what happens over time regardless. Um, That Hong Kong is a thing of the past. But there's also this added layer of what is the Hong Kong that I would go back to? I don't know if I would recognize it. There is a grief for what I'd missed out on because I was waiting for a specific moment to go back to it with this person that mm-hmm. that chance is gone. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's grief. And this is why this doing this project has been so meaningful to me as well, because it's getting to live in the memory and the preservation of those really special moments mm-hmm. with this very special place. And honoring your dad in many ways. Yeah, honoring my dad, honoring... Um, the place that raised me and that I'm so thankful for the perspectives I have because of it. I I feel very fortunate that a place that was colonized and has gone through so much hardships, it has created resilience in the people. It's a resilience I feel. And also this, yeah, it's just, it's something special and I can't quite put my finger on it, but mm-hmm. I'm thankful for my time there. And I do wish I can go back someday. Thank you. Yeah, it's beautiful. And Dr. Yan, what you were raised and born there. Born I was raised. born and raised in Hong Kong. I left Hong Kong when I was 33. So as you can imagine, Hong Kong is not just a place. Hong Kong is my root. So, and also part of my identity, right? So wherever I go, uh, Hong Kong is the number one identity I will identify with. And then, you know, now, of course, you know, with the Canadian so I, I visit Hong Kong quite frequently, uh, particularly because of my job. Uh, in the last 20 years, I basically visit Hong Kong almost like one and a half time a year. Um, so I have works and family there. Um, so I, I, you know, when I listen to uh, what you two talk about Hong Kong, there's, Hong Kong is a place, it's a funny place. It's very busy, crowded, and very bad air and, you know, noisy. <laughs> But the funny thing is, when you are there, you're walking on the street, okay, you, you feel very ripened, you feel life. Um, so I think this is, when you compare to, I, I live in London, uh, San Francisco, and Toronto, and here, okay, and honestly, even London, I would say is second to Hong Kong, uh, in terms of the ripency, in terms of the lively, you know, uh, kind of style. And, and one thing people don't know, uh, 40% of the lands in Hong Kong are con- reserved uh, for, uh, for park. So there's lots of natural beauties there. So, but of course, okay, the most important for me, you know, about Hong Kong is people, right? I grew up there, I have all my friends and family there, and it doesn't matter Hong Kong, how, how Hong Kong is going to be changed, okay? Those people are not changed, right? That relations will not be changed. So I think that is the the bonding, uh, which I don't think I can give up. So I think that's that's the dynamic. Hmm. And what's your favorite place in Hong Kong? Oh, that's a difficult question. <laughs> um, in the last, I would say, in the, at least in the last five years, okay, every time I visited Hong Kong, okay, I will at least spend two days, okay, uh, hiking, uh, because there's so many good trails in Hong Kong, and I always, you know, feel. 
when I, you know, were walking, I was walking on those trails, okay, I always regret, why didn't I do it, you know, when I was here before? Uh, but at least, you no, know, those those are sweet memories. It's so beautiful there, yeah. Mm. And knowing that, you know, the, the, the resistance of, of moving from a, a democratic state into this absorption into the Chinese system, um, what have you noticed in regards to just the atmosphere of, of Hong Kong in that transition? Is there a different feel to it? Is there a different, uh, are the people different? Are they more cautious? What's, what's, the, what's the atmosphere? Well, I was in Hong Kong um, from, I think from mid-August 2019 to uh, end of January 2020. So I saw the change in Hong Kong physically, not not just you know socially and something like that. You know when I saw uh, when the fans were put up uh, on all the uh, the fire bridges, uh, you know those pedestrian bridge. In Hong Kong, it used to be just you know there's lots of pedestrian bridge, right? So lots of them. Uh, but in the past, you know there's no fans. Okay, you can you can you can see full. Okay, everything. But during that uh, period of time, okay, the government put up more and more fans. That to me is a very symbolic um, meaning. You know, there's a very huge symbolic meaning there. It means Hong Kong now is in a cage, right? Because in the past, everything is open. And then, you know, I'm academic. So uh, actually the funny thing, sad and funny thing was, you know, I was affiliated with Hong Kong Polytechnic University during that period of time. And that day when they, um, when, you know, when the campus was surrounded, uh, I was planning to go to the campus to pick up something in the morning. <laughs> and for some other reason, I didn't go. Uh, I was, you know, always joking, okay, if I went there, probably I would be there for a week. Uh, but since then, okay, uh, sadly, all campuses in Hong Kong, all university and, and Basically, they are now put up a fence. They put up, you know, gate. Uh, you have to register before you can go into it. I, I just find it very sad uh, because, you know, as academia, right, it should be open. It should be allow, you know, allowing people to come in and enjoy and, and walk around. But now, no, you cannot do that. So that, again, okay, signal a big change of the of the life in Hong Kong and also that symbolically also reminding people you need to be careful um, something you probably should not say right even though the gay is physical uh, but it also signifies certain kind of mental gate uh, that now people are I think people are now very observing of those gate um, I think that's what happening now in Hong Kong people are, people speak very carefully now uh, even on social media um, because you never know, right? You never know when the social media surrender to the government and then they they submit the information to the government. You, and, and I think that's the reason why everybody become... I think everybody now have a gate in their mind. I think that's what happened now. What do you foresee as, as other, other things that people in Hong Kong should expect as to changes in their lives? I... I field, what happened now in Hong Kong is Hong Kong will be more and more aligned with China. Uh, politically, socially, even the lifestyle will be more like China, uh, the mainland China I'm talking about. Um, so I, I think that's that's what is going, you know, I think this is what is happening, not going to happen. This is happening. Uh, the election system certainly now moves towards to the Chinese interpretation of democracy. 
style, right? So, uh, in terms of um, freedom of speech, like what I said, everybody have a gate in their mind, uh, which I I notice all my colleagues in China always have that gate in their mind, and that they know. They can say something. They cannot say something publicly uh, or in the academic work. So they know how to walk on the fine line, uh, the political, non-political one. Mm-hmm. Like what I said, okay, the national security law is so ambiguous. Nobody really know where the where the red line is. Okay, so I I think you know people are testing, uh, and sooner or later people will find their own way to walk on the fine line. Yeah. Let's let's get to the eternal sailor a little bit here. Um, there's so many layers that you've kind of built into this in regards to disorientation, into disconnection, into establishing the fact that had you lived in Hong Kong up to this point, all of that's being dismantled in some way. Can you just talk through some of the constructions that you used to help portray that? Yeah, for sure. In in the play itself. The, the main form is two lovers trading messages, trading letters, and they're quite disjointed uh, in time and also in form. And, and this was a choice because after quite a few years away from home, my memories of Hong Kong is quite disjointed. Pieces kind of come together in, in batches sometimes, and sometimes I forget things for a long time, and then and then those memories would come back all of a sudden, and that's the main construct of the play itself. And then also in the play, sonically, there's this mosquito that just won't go away. And <laughs> in the writing process, uh, I, I'm just gonna be frank here. It in the beginning, I knew that I wanted this mosquito sound, but it took me and 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 the dramaturg and the director also quite a long time to figure out what it actually means and what it actually does functionally and what does it actually symbolizes, uh, what does it actually symbolize in the play itself. And after quite a few conversations uh, teasing it out, we realized that the mosquito is like this, this memory, this memory that just follows you around, that just won't go away, that, that you really want to get rid of in in a way, but but it just won't leave you, and that that symbolizes my memory of Hong Kong. And sometimes it causes so much pain that I don't want to remember it, but it is always here. And the mosquito also always aims to make a physical contact with you. It it aims to to break your skin, to draw your blood, and and that's another and that's another visceral uh, response to my memory of Hong Kong. A memory that 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 I really want to hang on to, but sometimes causes me so much trouble, so many sleepless nights. Mm-hmm. And Lock, you 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 were you were dealt the task of having to accomplish these things artistically in an audio world. Yes. Can you, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> can you did it beautifully? How can you talk about some of the things that you prioritized and 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 how to make this sense of yeah, disorientation or yeah, absolutely uh, reality. Yeah, um, I think that I actually very much appreciate all the things that you threw at us because it created a very rich sound world um, and a very rich, um, just rich devices to tell this story and to convey all those feelings. So yes, uh, doing it in audio medium, audio medium is is a task, but I was excited for the challenge of it. Uh, 
with, I guess, a big part of how to create that disorientation came from the spatial placement of these sounds. Um, with the mosquito, you'll hear that it kind of tracks from left to right, right to left, um, left, followed by this slap that really wakes you out of that kind of drone. Um, that was part of creating that sonic disorientation. Um, because we were moving back and forth between timelines, um, that ambiguity, I think, as well, really playing into it rather than spoon feeding the audience. This is where you're at. This is how you're feeling. This is how the story is going. Um, I enjoy ambiguity because I enjoy trusting that the audience is smart enough to um, figure it out or maybe just come to their own conclusions. They don't have to figure out the right answer. They just have to re resonate or relate or have some kind of emotion evoked that makes them want to respond to the piece. Be curious. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What could that possibly mean? Get totally. them thinking. Exactly. Like the ending. Mm -hmm. I don't want to prescribe an ending that gives them a sure sense of what's happened. I want them to go away and come up with their own theories or to just process it with their own lens. Because mm -hmm. I think that's the really cool thing about art is wherever we come from, we get to interpret something and it gets to give us specific meaning because of how our lived experiences it, it informs it. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Yan, your, one of your specialties is working with immigrants um, from Hong Kong to Canada and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So how has this uh, dismantling of what Hong Kongers have known their entire lives, how is that playing out in their real lives? How is that disrupting their families or their perceptions of um, what it means to live in this world? Mm -hmm. Well, this is a very complicated question. <laughs> um, the reason why I say it is complicated, uh, number one, I don't think you know um, Hong Kong immigrants are homogenous politically and um, ideologically. Uh, we do have a very similar split uh, in terms of political opinions uh, about what happened in Hong Kong um, among you know Hong Kong immigrants in Canada. So as you may know, okay, in Hong Kong they divided into the yellow camp and then the blue camp, uh, and I think we have a similar camps here. So it really depends on which which side are you at. Uh, I guess to those we let's classify them as the yellow or pro yellow camp, you know, immigrants. They they are facing a similar kind of disorientation. That's the reason why I really like you know that uh, story is that the disorientation. They don't know. Uh, they are hopeful. Some are hopeful. I would say some are not. Okay. Um, some are quite pessimistic. Um, uh, I I think I'm the later one. Okay. I'm I'm a little bit pessimistic. Um, given you know uh, what we have seen and experienced in the past. So. This kind of debate, um, if you notice, actually, um, when we have the anti anti Asian racist uh, movement, uh, there, you know, if you notice the subtle uh, divisions of uh, political opinion there, okay, you can see uh, there's some pro Chinese uh, camp of um, Hong Kong immigrants, okay, they issue some statement, and then there are some um, pro movement uh, Hong Kong people, they also issue their statement. And even in those statements, okay, they are split. Um, so that kind of split situation, I don't think it will be will be end soon. Uh, it will be part of the dynamic within the Hong Kong immigrants community. And unfortunately, um, given what happened now in Hong Kong, okay, the the 
yellow cam or the pro-yellow cam Hong Kong immigrants will experience the disorientation for a long time. And that's the reason why now uh, more and more people are trying to bring up the idea of, of so-called Hong Kong diaspora. And they, I think, you know, the, the reason why people mention this term or even trying to form themselves as a unique diaspora group is trying to organize themselves for long-term um, resilience reactions to the government. I, I don't want to use the word resistance because to a certain extent, resistance is futile um, when we are here. But at least, okay, they, they, they are finding a way, okay, to, to connect and then see whether they can sustain these kind of uh, connections. Uh, I, I, this is happening. You know, this is happening in Vancouver. This is happening in Calgary and in Toronto. And there's some movement trying to connect all these, you know, um, local uh, movement too. Yeah. So within the the piece itself is is your use of say crimson lung or the the red algae on the water is that is that somehow connected to this? Crimson lung is definitely connected to the increasing Chinese influence on Hong Kong. Uh, but I must admit that the idea came from a childhood memory of mine uh, going to elementary school in Hong Kong. And we were taught about the red algae uh, uh, in Cantonese. And when you see that, you're not supposed to go swimming because it's toxic to you. And so that's where it came from uh, when, when the idea of Hong Kong being submerged in water mm. came to my mind for this play. And then one day I was writing and this, this idea just... Um, came to my fingertips, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it was a beautiful metaphor for um, toxicity or or things that are, are are dangerous to just to your humanity. Uh, yeah. And, and with this sort of red algae, they just bloom. They just happen uh, in a very quite unpredictably sometimes. Uh, and and they, they bloom in very large scale covering masses of water as well. But also the crimson lung is interesting metaphor as well for for removing a voice, removing um, autonomy. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, and, and it's in the lungs because air uh, fuels our speech, uh, air fuels our, our blood, our brain activity. And again, like the mosquito, it's a visceral response. As well, and it, in in the story, the crimson lung uh, it, it destroys your lungs uh, to a point. I think one of the characters just says, "Like it, it just melts your lungs or something," and it literally takes your breath away. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. So you you work a lot with families and and communities, right? Of of immigrants. Do you see um, much difference in? Uh, ideology in um, how the younger generation views uh, the state of either Hong Kong or China? Um, and does that differ f- in Hong Kong itself as it does in Canada? I I think this is a big time here. Uh, the younger generation, honestly, I'm so happy to see two younger generation here uh, from Hong Kong. Uh, that kind of Intergeneration, intergenerational dynamics uh, play out in Hong Kong and play out here. You know, the movement in Hong Kong during the ni- uh, 2019 and 2020, most of them were younger generation, uh, particularly for those at the front. Uh, the older generation, uh, from what I observe, okay, tend to be in the middle and then at the end um, of, you know, at the parade or, or the rally. Right? Uh, I think the younger generation understand 
what democracy is and understand the importance of freedom of speech and freedom of you know um, many things. And to them, I think uh, that kind of you know situation in Hong Kong, uh, I would say, attack their unconscious identity, um, something they they know they are, but they really don't feel they need to talk about it, right? When Hong Kong is just a regular Hong Kong, nobody need to talk about it. It's just my parents' stuff, okay? But when what happened in Hong Kong really hit, you know, their values and also hit their understanding of what the world should be, uh, that really wake them up uh, from those kind of unconscious, understood uh, understanding of their own identity. I think that's what happened. Unfortunately, I think many parents, they, um, particularly some parents, they are not really like what I said, the blue camp. But they don't really want their children to go onto the street. Uh, again, this happened in Hong Kong. Many parents they are not supporting the government, but they also don't want their children to go on the street, to, you know, to fight against the police and 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 you know at the government. So they are, you know, the, the parents are torn, right? Um, and I think that kind of you know situation also happened to here to many parents. Uh, they don't want their children to be too into those kind of radical uh, movement. Uh, as I, as far as I know, okay, there's some, there were some of the younger generation here. They, they just bought the ticket and then went back to Hong Kong. Uh, it happened in the 2014, okay, during the Umbrella Movement. It happened this time also, um, and some of them were arrested in Hong Kong. So I think that's the reason why, to some parents, they are very worried, uh, even though they, they may not endorse what the government have been doing, uh, but they also don't want the children to get too. A fun, right, to the fun, you know, of the movement. So I think those kind of dynamics are happening in many families. Were you present during the Yellow Umbrella? Uh, no, unfortunately, I was not able to go. Uh, but I was, you know, at least, you know, I have a five months traumatic experience in Hong Kong, right, in the 2019. Uh huh. It was quite traumatic. I have you were there for five months. For five months. And why five months? I was on leave, um, so I was affiliating in uh, Hong Kong Polytechnic U, doing some uh, teaching and research, um, and and also, okay, put it this way, I plan to go, okay, long before this happened. Um, I was a director of the school, and after my term, I have eight months uh, administrative leave, so that means five years, you know, three years before that things happened. I already planned to spend five months in Hong Kong with my families and, and friends there, right? So it happened I, to just land within this this. It this just protest. happened. It, uh -huh. it happened. Actually, we were my wife and I were debating whether we wanted to go back to Hong Kong given the you know chaotic situation. Mm -hmm. But I, I felt strongly that I must be there, okay? Uh, because it's my hometown and now it's in chaos. Uh, I, I don't I, I don't think I can do a lot. Um, as you know, I think the fact is I'm a Canadian, and I'm not living there. You know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and 52 weeks a year. So, I, but I I feel obligated to be there. And why was it traumatic? Oh, I think I you know I grew up in a very peaceful Hong Kong. Whether it's a colony or not, okay. Actually, you know, to, from my perspective, it it doesn't really matter. Okay, we just grew up there. And Hong Kong was, you know, quite peaceful. And uh, I did experience the 1967 riot. Okay, let's use the word riot. Okay, it was riot. Okay, and um, but I was very young. Okay, I, I could see the bone was exploded, uh, and I, I could see, you know, many fake bone all everywhere. Okay, uh, but after that, okay, the society was, you know, turning into more settled and also quite peaceful and. 
the the colonial government, because of you know for various reasons, they were trying to uh, develop Hong Kong and open more social and political space for Hong Kong people to engage. And we we were the lucky generation, right? We you know we ride the uh, the the, the broom uh, of the economy and also the open up of the democracy. Uh, but so I never really experienced anything like so conflicting, right, or so violent. Um, uh, when I say violence, I'm not just talking about one form of violence. Okay, I'm talking about multiple form of violence. Okay, uh, including you know the political uh, violence, the uh, police brutality, and also the young people's radical uh, actions on the street. And it was almost like a war song. A few times, uh, I was in one of those uh, rally, uh, rally, and it was a peaceful rally. You know, I you know I I went there. It was you know um in Chimsa Church, okay, close to the uh you know the bell tower. It was almost like a carnival, and I was standing there. I was like, this is weird, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's almost like a carnival, and then all of a sudden, okay, the police just you know rush in, okay, and and the, you know in the situation is it was like a lots of police rush in, okay. Six police all of a sudden rushing in, okay, full gear, and trying to chase a person, and then just stir up the whole emotions among all the people, right? And then you know, and then later on, ten minutes later, uh, they they start you know um, firing those um, tear gas, and then everybody was panicked, right? Uh, coming from nowhere, the police just came in, disrupt the the carnival. You know, from my perspective is, and then you know uh, they start you know marching in with you know tear gas. And everybody just, you know, there was only there was only one narrow escape route. And then imagine we are talking about a couple thousand people, right? Trying to escape from that, you know, narrow route. It was so chaotic. And, and that was, you know, my my most okay. Um I first time, okay, I experienced this kind of, you know, um, um I would say brutal violence. You can really see the transition oh, firsthand yes. and smelt it. I yes. smell it too, yes. Yeah. yeah. There's also the concept of of when in, when you leave a country um, for good, you end, you essentially become a little bit frozen in time in regards to your idea of that of that culture, your use of the language. Um, it no longer evolves with your lived experience. It's 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 exactly as it was when you left. Well, speaking of frozen in time, how is that for you then? Because ten years old, uh, that's a lot of that's a long time ago, mm-hmm. uh, and and as a as a child, uh, you definitely see the world very differently, experience the world very differently. So, what what's it like for you then? Speaking of frozen in time, yeah, because again, like we all um, again multi generational um, experience in Hong Kong, all left at different points. Um, mine is frozen as like a younger child. Um, so when you talk about the hikes in Hong Kong, I can't tell you exactly where those pathways might be. I have these memories of like walking through the jungle or um, like climbing the mountain um, by my school. And I have that visceral memory of the that beauty that you talk about, but I don't have the adult cognition to name where that was or to know how I got there. They're just pockets of remembrance that I get to live with. Um, and also because I was living as I was a child. So, you know, I'm speaking quite whimsically and quite um, precious about this. And I'm sure if I went back as an adult, my sister got to go back actually in 2019. Um, and she was like, yeah, I don't think I liked it as much as I thought I would 
Whereas me, I had this like romantic, beautiful idea of like when I go back, but she was like, eh, I like Japan more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But like for me, it is really caught in. I think we, in the last episode, you talked about kind of like silly love stories. For me, this also feels like a bit of a silly love story because there's a romance around this place I remember, but haven't gone back to as an adult. And this place that feels caught in the magic of my childhood, but I think would be very different. It's not just because of what's happened, but because I'd be a different person returning. Uh, and you were wanting to go back. You went through a big process of of deciding not to. Can you just talk a little bit about that? I did. I really wanted to go back, uh, back in 2019 when everything was happening. And I debated with myself and a mentor of mine for a long time, actually. Uh, I was I was on tour uh, at the moment, and and uh, it was one of those late night conversations. Uh, I asked my mentor, like, "Hey, I really want to go back, but I don't. I don't have that much time uh, away from work in Canada. Should I? Should I go back just to see Hong Kong one last time? Should I? Should I? You know, go back and get into the thick of it because I really wanted to." And my mentor said, "Well, if you're only going back for two weeks, two months." Are, are you just going there for political tourism? Or are you gonna are you gonna make a difference? Or what what if what if you get caught? What if you get caught there and 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 all of your work is gonna go away? Why don't you use your use your training, use your skills as an artist, as a writer over here in Canada when you still can have a voice, write as much as you can um, to try to preserve the memory, try to make a difference over here instead. Instead of risking yourself in 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 a, in a rash moment, perhaps, and and of course, uh, I I I we had a very long conversation after that point. But at the end, I I saw I saw where my mentor was coming from and decided to stick around. But now that I have stuck around in Canada, uh, it was. During another project, another interview, uh, the the reporter essentially reminded me that I might have seen Hong Kong for the last time ever, and uh, I might have seen some of my family members for the last time ever, and that really that really hit hard for me. Mm-hmm. I bet. Well, thank you all so much for joining me today and for this delicate conversation. Um, We so appreciate it and we appreciate you joining us uh, as listeners. Uh, If you are so willing, go ahead and subscribe, leave a rating, uh, review, uh, and follow us on socials at SoundTheAlarmMT. And uh, thank you all once again. Have a great day. Thank you.